Good morning. And uh, again, as Jake said, I want to welcome you to downtown Presbyterian, our time of worship. Um, let me tell you what this morning is about. I mean, it's primarily about the worship of God, but about where this part fits into the worship. One of the things that, that we say about our church, and, and really, you know, I, I talk about this when I do the foundations class with people who are interested in learning more about the church and try to explain more about who we are. One of the things that we like to talk about is that something we believe as a church, we would call it a presupposition of our church, is that God is at work. In other words, like it's not like we repelled in, you know, to, to Greenville Special Ops to do this thing that God wasn't doing yet, and we're like manufacturing something that's happening. Uh, God was already at work in our city, and God is at work beyond downtown Presbyterian Church. But, uh, but, but our hope is that we are participating in the work that God is already doing. And I'll tell you just from the, from the pastors, you know, from, from our viewpoint, something that we get a front row seat to is that there are things that before we ever taught on it or addressed it or prioritized it, God was already baking it into the life of our church. And a big one is this emphasis on what we're calling adoption and, and orphan care. That wasn't something that pastors or elders, you know, that we decided we were going to emphasize and that's going to be a core value. God just put it on the hearts of people in our church and sort of cooked it into the life of our church. So, you know, this Sunday we're emphasizing that. We don't have many theme Sundays besides, you know, the one closest to Christmas and then, and then Easter, but we do make sort of a theme out of this and there's no ask and there's no pledge card that I will now go from here and do such and such, but we just want to regularly put before you God's heart for the fatherless. And, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, that, uh, and I'm using a term that another writer, thinker, has, uh, came up with. This, uh, this writer coined the term, the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. And what he's talking about is are sort of these four people, or these four categories, and they just keep coming up in the Bible. Old and New Testament, the poor, the widow, the alien, or maybe the sojourner, and the fatherless, or the orphan. Over and over and over, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. It's in the law of God. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. In the Gospels, uh, what does Jesus' life and ministry look like? Who does he move toward? Uh, it's in the Apostles. And uh, at this uh, Adoption and Orphan Care Sunday last year, I really kind of came through the front door. We looked at the passage in James in the New Testament where James writes that, you know, the, the religion that God accepts, the, the, the good religion, you know, religion has so many negative connotations, but the good religion is to care for widows and orphans. In, in their distress and to keep yourself un, unpolluted from the world. So last year, as we looked at this, I kind of came through the front door. I, I'm going to kind of come through the side door. This, uh, well, if God helps us, I'll come through the side door. But I want to look at a passage from 2 Kings. This is not a famous biblical story, so it may not be known to you. And uh, if you don't have your Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. But I want to put it before you because I, I want to try to engage a question. And so here's the question. If, if God 
just could not have been clearer from, from stem to stern, Old Testament, New Testament, if he keeps showing you, not just telling you, but showing us, I love the widow, I love the orphan, I love the alien, I love the poor, why does it occupy so little of our bandwidth? And it's just, you know, and, you, and those of you who've been around, you've heard me say this in different ways. I, you know, I, we, we can... We can get scolded about it. I can sort of beat us about the head and shoulders about it. But what actually leads to change? So what I want to think about is, all right, if this is a big deal to God, and generally speaking, I know there's different people and different priorities in the room and different levels of engagement with things in our town. But overall, it's just not as big a deal in our lives. And I'm talking about professing Christians. I'm not assuming you're a Christian, but I'm saying there is a critical mass of people here who profess to be Christians. Why is it not a big deal to us? And what, instead of just saying, it's not a big deal to us and scolding, what I want to ask is, what is up underneath that? Because if we can look at that, maybe we can change. Or maybe God can change us. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 7. And here's the context. Uh, This is during the time when Israel is not just one kingdom, it's two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, and that's the one that we call Israel, and sort of the capital home base is Samaria. During this time, the southern kingdom, the smaller one, is is Judah, and the capital is Jerusalem. So this is after King Solomon, but you've got different kings, one king in the north, one king in the south. Now, there were mostly bad kings in the south, with a few broad exceptions. There were pretty much no good kings in the north with the exception maybe of a guy named Jehu for a little bit, there were no good kings. This is a rebellious group of tribes. So that's where this passage happens, in the north, in the capital city, Samaria. And their enemies um, to the north, Syria, have besieged the capital city. And sieges are terrible. You know, the military surrounds you. They cut off your supplies If they can, they cut off your water. You're completely surrounded. You're running out of resources. And finally, either you just give up or you're so collapsed and weakened, they just overwhelm you. And so the situation is so dire. I'm not going to read this, but I'll just refer to it. In the prior passage, some of the Israelites in Samaria have reverted to cannibalism. Which would have been, that would have seemed unthinkable going into the promised land. So that's the context. 2 Kings chapter 7. But Elisha said, and this is not Elijah, this is his successor, Elisha. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah, a fine flower, and that's about seven, seven and a half quarts shall be sold for a shekel and two sayas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. 
And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste, and the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are worshiping you, and we want uh, our listening to you to be part of our worship of you. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear, and we pray that we will not remain the people that we are that what is closed off to you and what is closed off to others, even what we're blind to about ourselves, that you would open our eyes, cause your light and the light of your word to flood in. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, In 2012, early 2012, there was a a crisis situation with uh, an American aid worker and a Dutch volunteer in Somalia. They were working with a, they were both working with a Danish council in part of Somalia, and they, um, these two individuals were captured by Somali pirates. And you may remember this story. And so all kinds of negotiations were attempted, and, the, and even uh, American authorities were trying to work through Somali tribal elders, and um, one and a half million dollars of ransom, I guess, was raised by the, the family <clears throat> of the woman 
to, to offer to the pirates, and they said no. And, um, and her name was Jessica Buchanan, and it was learned that she was starting to have health problems. I can't remember if she was diabetic or what the exact situation was, but she didn't have medication. And, and she was starting to get to a crisis point, and she's not getting help because these pirates have her. And so um, a special operation was launched. And, and it's interesting, if you go back and watch the State of the Union address from 2012, when President Obama was walking into the House chamber and, you know, they're filing past all the other officials, when he walked past the Defense Secretary, Leon Panetta, that night he said, hey, good job tonight, and no one knew what he was talking about. But what he was talking about was 24 Navy SEALs, uh, at least part of whom were from SEAL Team 6. By the way, do you know what the Navy's name for SEAL Team 6 is? It's not SEAL Team 6. It's Development Group. Oh, Don't ever develop anything that involves me, please, uh, development group. 24 Navy SEALs landed, encircled this site where Jessa Buchanan and this Danish uh, uh, volunteer came in. We're going to try to come in and secure them without engaging these pirates, but, uh, but somebody shot. And so all nine of these Somali pirates... Have I been saying pilots? I meant to say pirates. Pirates were um, eliminated. And uh, they found her, and they started bringing her to a, to a helicopter. And then they thought, as they were moving her, this is all at night, they thought they heard something, and immediately they put her on the ground, and just multiple seals laid on top of her. And so they determined there was no threat. And this is unbelievable. They put her on the chopper. They hand her a folded American flag, and she takes off. They, like, she never saw their faces, never got their names. They take a different chopper. They just fade into the night. Awesome. Now, the next year, 60 Minutes did a piece about Jessica Buchanan, and the name of the piece was not the homegoing of Jessica Buchanan or the calming of Jessica Buchanan. The name of the piece was The Rescue of Jessica Buchanan. And here's why I'm belaboring that point, is um, a way that Christians talk about our lives is we say, we are saved. And that's not just Christian lingo that we came up with. We, we, we get that language from the New Testament, that we are saved because that's part of Christian lingo, part of how Christians talk. I think sometimes when we hear, I'm saved, or so-and-so is saved, what it sounds like to us is, um, my sins are forgiven, or I'm a new person, or I talk to God now. And of course, all, all those things are true in the life of the Christian. But what does it mean to be saved? In the biblical way of talking about it, it means to be rescued. Jake alluded to this. To be rescued from what? To be rescued from, first and foremost, the justice from a holy God that every single one of us richly deserve. And the New Testament will save, you know, use language like Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. That's not Old Testament, that's New 
besides all the other things that he rescues us from. Like, what if my life was uninterrupted by God? What if God didn't burst in and meddle with things and disrupt things and change things and point out things? What if he just gave me over to myself? Yes, he saves us from that, but first and foremost, from the punishment that I deserve, he saves me, rescues me. Um, this is a story, this account, and when I say story, don't hear fiction. This is a, it's presented as a historic account with supernatural elements to it of a rescue. Uh, even though this is a kingdom that is in rebellion, it's not where it should be. It's not doing what it should do, the northern kingdom. It's not following the right line of kings. And it's really turning its back on God. And that's going to be really important. That God comes in and and rescues. So let's look at just two things. The rescue and the response. All right? The rescue and the response. Now, uh, here's the crisis. And again, I I don't want to be more earthy than Scripture, but I don't want to be less earthy than Scripture. If you look in the law of God, and when I say the law, I'm thinking about that like like a Hebrew we talk about the Torah, the law of God. Genesis to Deuteronomy. Two different times. Once in Leviticus and once in Deuteronomy. And the part in Deuteronomy really is almost the, it's almost the end of the Torah. God says this, I'm making a covenant with you. We have a covenant with each. It's really like marriage language. You're married to me and I'm married to you. If you keep the terms of this covenant, here are the blessings that are afforded to you. And if you break this covenant, here are the curses that are afforded to you. Now, I want to read you just one quote from from Deuteronomy about one of the curses. Because I I have to believe that when the Israelites heard this before they crossed the Jordan River, they thought, well, there, there may be other mistakes that we make, but we will never, ever experience that. From Deuteronomy 28, he says that, all right, if you break my covenant... And I allow your enemies to descend on you. God says, they shall besiege you in all your towns, throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. And he goes on to say, the most sensitive woman the most gentle mother who hardly will put her bare foot on the ground, the best of men among you will fight over food, even if the food is their own children. Now, again, I have to believe the Israelites thought, we might have our downtimes, but it it will never come to that. 2 Kings 6 ends with that happening. It is absolutely desperate. And it talks about how uh, the head of a donkey sold for uh, six, uh, 60 shekels of silver. You know, five shekels would be like half a year's wages. So, what, what six years of working for, for a day laborer to buy a donkey head? I mean, they are out of food and they're desperate. And then Elisha says this, Yep, it's bad. 
And here's what's going to happen tomorrow. Come tomorrow. And he's saying this in the midst of the crisis. You'll be able to buy seven and a half quarts of flour for one piece of silver. Lots of barley for one piece of silver. It is absolutely, by sight, impossible. And and Elisha is talking to a man who's an assistant to the king, and he says, you're going to see it. You're not going to partake of it, but you are going to see it. And so what happens? Verse 6. The Lord made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was. And they fled for their lives. Now, If that sounds to you like a supernatural rescue, it is. And I feel the need to say that over and over. The Bible is just replete with the supernatural. It doesn't hide that from us. It says God, not through normal means, through supernatural means, rescues his people. Now, I told you I was going to harp on this, so let me harp on it. For whom does he do this? This is the northern kingdom. These are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the blood descendants of the patriarchs. They have the creation account. They have the law of God. They have Moses. Their ancestors are the ones who actually came out of Egypt and crossed the Jordan River made it through the wilderness, crossed the Jordan River. The reason that they live in Samaria, a place where all these pagans used to live, that were driven out when these Israelites did not have the power or the resources to drive them out on their own. The reason they live where they live is because of God. God chose them. God made a covenant with them. God said, you're my treasured possession." God has been with them. God has been faithful to them. And the northern kingdom turns its back on the Lord and goes after other gods. And what does God do? What does God do when he told them in the law, not once but twice, if you keep the covenant, here's how great it will be. If you break the covenant, here's how terrible it will be. And it's that terrible. And what does God do? He rescues them. Now, this text is really not going to mean much to your insides if you don't grab this part. If, again, I'm not assuming that you are a Christian, but there's a critical mass of people here who would profess to be that, like would profess to be someone who can say, I am saved. If you are a person who claims to be saved, What is your understanding of what your condition was when God saved you? When God came to you, did he come to a fundamentally good person just waiting to be improved? Or did he come to people like us who were dead? That's the New Testament language. And the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to a group of Christians, he said, you were dead 
in your trespasses and your sins. How much help can dead people go get for themselves? None. They're dead. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, what? God rescued you. By grace you've been saved. You've been rescued through faith. This not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. What is your understanding of you before God rescued you? Were you a good person waiting to be improved, or did he rescue a bad, dead, helpless person? Because if it's the former, I doubt that the gospel can mean much to you. Because the gospel is for bad people. The New Testament says it's the latter. The rescue operation for the dead and the helpless. I want you to connect the dots from our narrative of our lives to the northern kingdom people in Samaria who cannot rescue themselves and it's helpless. So God rescues them. All right, so what's the response? And you get these, you get these four lepers. And, um, you know, they, they actually were good. They were pretty good logic choppers because they, they talk. And uh, they had plenty of time. And, uh, you know, they can't, they're not supposed to be in the city. They're lepers. They're unclean. And so they just kind of chop it down and say, well, all right, if we stay here, we die for sure. If we go over to the Syrian camp, we might die. But if we die over there, that's really no different than dying over here. So that's the same baseline. There is the slim chance that they would help us. So let's go over there. So they go over there. They don't know what we know yet. And the camp is empty. And the mental picture I have is from that first Jurassic Park movie, where the, um, like from the 90s, where the two kids... You know, they've just been through it, and dinosaurs have chased them, and they've almost been eaten, and they're just, they're just threadbare and limping. And somehow they come into this building. It was sort of like a, a dining facility in the Jurassic Park, and there's this untouched buffet. And they just walk in, and, you know, you see them walk to a perfect dessert table. And so they're just grabbing food and just eating whatever they want. That was these four lepers. Just, I mean, ravenously hungry. They come into a tent, food, stuff, no one there. That just frenetic eating that most of us have probably never experienced. We've probably never been that hungry. Frenetic eating, grab stuff, grab money, grab clothes, go hide it, go into another tent. A little bit less frenzied eating. Grab stuff, grab money, go stash it. They're coming into the third tent. I'm kind of picturing now they're just sort of like ripping off drumsticks, just taking the first good bite, throw them over the shoulder. Grabbing stuff, stash it. And... At some point, God brings them to their senses and they say, whoa, whoa, what are we doing? And what was the first response? Hoard. We've been rescued. Hoard everything that God gave us. Only God could have done this. What's the wiser response? And the language is really interesting. Verse 9. They said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. What comes naturally to us when God rescues us? This really is a window into our own hearts. 
what comes naturally to God's people when we've been rescued is just stockpile all the amazing stuff that God gave you and protect you and yours. It's funny, I I just uh, saw Black Panther this weekend. No spoilers. But I I couldn't believe he killed Batman. Uh, That was... Kidding, I was joking with Jake about that. That'd be a Marvel DC. Just a couple of people just left our church because I said that. But, um, but, but one of the big themes, this is not a spoiler, one of the big themes is that this nation where Black Panther comes from, Wakanda, is, is pretty much unknown to the world as it really is. And as it really is, it has, <clears throat> excuse me, these incomparable resources. And the tension and the issue in the leadership of Wakanda is, do we use the resources to preserve and protect what we uniquely have, or do we share it with a hurting world? That theme runs through the whole movie. Now, that's the fictional situation of Wakanda. That is precisely the situation of the real church. If you're a saved person, what do you have? We don't have time in the rest of the service to list that. You, You are adopted by God the Father. If God the Father says, I am your dad now, everything in our inside should dial down now. We have cleansing and life in Jesus Christ, which is so real. Like that, it's so real it, it, that just at the, at the street level, that means you can actually try things for God that you've never done before. And if you mess it up, he still loves you and it's pleasing to him. It really would be interesting just if we could quantify it somehow to know just from we who are in this room, what could have been done and maybe what was on our hearts to try to do for the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the alien. And we never did it. And what shut it down was perfectionism. I'm sort of glad we can't see that spreadsheet on ourselves. I'm in Christ and, and the pressure cooker is off. I am forgiven. I'm whole. I'm accepted. I'm pardoned. I'm not in a pressure cooker anymore. I can try things. I have the Holy Spirit. I am the temple of God. And we are the temple of God. We are indwelt by the third person of the Godhead, equal in power and glory to the Father and the Son. And, and, we have each other. And don't diminish that. Uh, you know, I've said on a personal level, one of the highlights for me in, in my job is to get to serve you the cup. And sometimes during the week, I just feel like I'm losing and we're losing and oh crud. And there's something about when I'm, I see your faces, and I'm, I'm not just saying this, there's something about when I see your faces and the look in your eye, I kind of feel like we, we are going to spit in the devil's eye. Uh, This is as real as the fact that my three children, you know, when we moved here, we didn't know a lot of people at all. And my three children now have a tribe of moms and dads. Tribe of moms and dads because of you. 
what is up underneath our apathy about that quartet of the vulnerable? It's not going to be exactly the same with every person, but a lot of it has to be that the narrative of my life is if I just kind of circle the wagons and pool my resources and sort of hang on for dear life, maybe I'll die a Christian and, you know, if I'm a parent, maybe my children won't be too wild. And here's what I want to say to you. We have a lot more than that. I mean, if you were under siege and there is no food, then yeah, you've got to protect any scrap that you find. But we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You, you have more brothers and sisters than you can name. Uh, you have resources, whether that's money or knowledge or leverage or cultural influence. You have access to resources that I, we, we can't even list right now. And so here's what I want to say to you. you know, I, I should have titled this sermon, You Don't Have to Live Like a Refugee, but that was just too... I wanted to. But... The narrative of your life it can be, my cup overflows, and I can move toward another person. I can't rescue every orphan. I can't foster care every child. I can't tutor every child that can't read. I, I, can't, I can't do it all. But I can do one thing. I can do one thing and not have to hoard because my cup overflows. And so I want you to know that. And I want you to act on it. And pray that God would put on your heart where you should step, where you haven't stepped before. Not run a mile, but take a step toward the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the alien. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to step. Help us to believe that we are not just okay, but that our cup overflows and we might share. If we feel overwhelmed, help us to just... uh, Help us to know that we may move toward one person and have your smile, your pleasure, your blessing. And to do that in Christ's name. Please use our efforts in this city and beyond. Glorify your name, not ours. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.